0: Part 1, Chapter 2 of Israel's Faith, a series of lessons for the Jewish youth by Nathan Solomon Joseph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To learn more about LibriVox or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unity of God. Perhaps you may ask, how am I to know that the world had only one Maker? how am I to know that there is only one God? You might point to the steam engine and tell me it was made by several makers, and then argue that each wonder of the world might have had a separate maker. You would not be the first person to reason in this way. Indeed, in olden times, there were several nations who believed in almost any number of gods. I'm going to prove to you that these people were very foolish in that it is right and reasonable to believe that there is only one God the creator of the whole world and of everything therein. This is what is meant by the unity or oneness of God. Let us take another look at the steam engine. Now, it is certainly true that the engine was made by several people, but one man only designed it. That is to say, there was one man only who first made a drawing or picture of it before it was begun, and that same man it was who decided how large it should be and how strong it should be how much weight it should be able to drag, how fast it should be able to run, and how large and how small every one of the 4,000 pieces of metal should be. And all the men who were employed in making the engine were just like so many machines, obeying the orders of the master engineer, not daring to disobey, but following exactly the picture or design he had set before them. It was only by this strict obedience that the engine could ever have been finished and turn out to be a moving machine. For if one of the workmen took it into his head to make one of the parts larger or smaller than was intended by the master engineer, the engine would have turned out weak or unruly, or perhaps would never have been able to move at all. So you see, after all, the whole engine might be said to be the work of one man, for in making it, the common workman who put it together had no more to do with the design or intention than the miners who dug out of the earth metals of which it was made. Indeed, if we look at the finished steam engine, we shall see at once that only one man must have had the arrangement of it. If it were not so, the enormous number of parts would not fit into one another so exactly. It is this exact fitting of the various parts, all pointing to one object or intention, which makes us feel sure that However many hands put the engine together, one mastermind designed or arranged it. Now, if I can show you that the earth, nay, that the whole world, is in this respect, just like the steam engine, that every little or great part exactly fits into some other part, and that each part, as well as the whole which is made up of the parts, points to one great object or design, you will believe that no matter how many powers may have been used in making the great world, there was only one god who was the master engineer of the world who designed ordained arranged and regulated it all let us begin with the earth itself what do we find therein we find coal in abundance to warm our homes and cook our food then iron the material of all those tools with which we till the ground make our clothing our furniture indeed everything that has to be shaped the stone to build our houses and lime and sand to join the stone together and then not the least of the treasures of the earth we find springs of pure water bursting out of the hard rocks flowing in little streams and swelling into large rivers always ready and at hand to quench our thirst all for the good of the inhabitants of this earth then let us consider the sea it is the great cistern from which the sun and air draw up moisture the moisture collects into clouds the clouds fall and refreshing showers of rain upon the fields and forests making the earth bring forth corn and fruit and flowers in abundance and then the surplus water runs into rills and the rills run into ditches and the ditches into brooks and the brooks into rivers and the rivers into the sea and so the water which came from the sea returns to the sea completing its circle of usefulness, and ready to begin anew a like circle of silent, useful work, and all for the good of the inhabitants of this earth. Next, let us consider the living things that swarm in the sea. There are shoals of fishes which yield food, sea monsters which yield oil, and seaweeds which manure the fields near the sea coast, all for the good of the inhabitants of this earth. Then let us consider the air. How wonderfully it is arranged we are always breathing a part of it so too are the plants now you might think in the course of time all the air would be spent or would become impure through so many plants and animals breathing it and so it would but for the wise forethought of god the air which you cannot see and which you only feel when it blows against your face is made up of several kinds of gas or air mixed together one of these gases oxygen Animals inhale or breathe in, and when it has passed through their lungs, they breathe it out again. It is then found to be entirely changed and to be exactly like another part of the air, carbonic acid gas, which the plants breathe. And so you see, the animals breathe out the very kind of air which the plants require. But this is not all. This carbonic acid gas, which the plants and trees breathe, also becomes changed in passing through them, and when they breathe it out it is changed back again into oxygen, the very kind of air that we and all animals require. It cannot matter how many animals there are upon the earth to be supplied with air, for however impure they make it, the plants and trees are quite sure to set it right again. Surely such a fact as this is quite enough to show that the animals, the plants, and the air they breathe must have had one and the same maker. For how could we imagine it possible that the animals were made by one maker, the plants by another, and the air they breathed by a third, and yet that this wonderful arrangement could exist? Another great fact in nature, which I shall proceed to explain, is that there is no waste. If you inquire into the cause of this, you will find how it is that there is no waste you will see that animals, plants, and even lifeless things have a way of changing places, one with the other. For example, suppose we sow some beans. The rain moistens them. In course of time, they will sprout. There is something in the seed which we call life, but which we do not at all understand, giving it the power of breathing the air, of drinking the water, and of feeding in the lifeless earth. And so the seed grows into a plant, it becomes larger and larger, at last it flowers, then the flowers drop off, and gradually the beans appear in their stead. A stem, a root, a number of leaves, a flower, and a quantity of beans seem all to have come from a simple seed. But they have really come from many things besides the seed. Something has come out of the earth, and something out of the air, and these somethings, which were before lifeless, have mixed with the little seed and become part of the living plant how we do not know and perhaps never shall now what becomes of the plant let us watch and find out suppose a horse eats the beans the beans will become part of his flesh and blood and muscles and bones and so such part of the plant as useful for food becomes part of the animal as for the remainder it is not wasted the leaves will fade and the stalks will wither, but the leaves will crumble into dust at last and become part of the earth again, a very fertile part known as leaf mold. The stalks and roots will do the same if left to themselves, but the farmer will perhaps burn them and use the ashes for manure, which brings them to the same useful end, for they become part of the earth again, ready next year to serve the same useful purpose, perhaps not as part of a crop of beans, but for wheat or barley or something of that sort. And bear this in mind, it is the same earth, the same lifeless soil, which becomes part of the beans or part of the wheat or part of the barley. We have seen how the lifeless earth changes into and forms part of the living plant and how a portion of the living plant changes into and forms parts of the living and moving animal. Let us watch the further changes. The horse which ate the beans, of course, breathes, and we know that part of his food goes to form the air which he breathes out, so certain portions of the beans go back into the air, which, you will remember, was part of the nourishment of the growing bean, and more than that, it goes back just in the very state, fit and ready for the plants to breathe. And what becomes of the horse? In course of time it will die of old age, its skin will be used for one purpose, and its hair for another. Perhaps its flesh will feed other animals, but its bones will be burned and ground for bone earth, a most valuable manure, and such parts of the poor old horse as cannot be turned to some profitable purpose, will be buried in the ground, becoming dust, very fertile dust, ready like the bone earth, to grow a crop of beans or wheat or barley of extra fine quality. The chain is thus complete between the animal, the vegetable, and the mineral creations, does it then seem possible that these things had more than one maker if there were two or more makers would it be likely that the work of one would exactly fit into the work of the other in every respect that the object or intention of one would exactly agree with the object or intention of another that the material used by the one would be the same as the material used by the other If there were more than one maker, would it be likely that the earth and all in it would be controlled by one never-changing law, that the great planets, which twinkle like little sparks in the sky, would follow the same law, that is, the law of gravitation, that the animals would be so formed that they breathe one air, and the plants so formed that they breathe another air, and above all, that there would be manifest in all the works of creation one main object namely, the good of all living creatures. The thing is impossible. There cannot be two or more makers. If such a work as the steam engine required one mastermind to design it, what shall we say of the world, where we find thousands of objects, each more wonderful, more lasting, more perfect than the steam engine, and all fitting exactly into one another and pointing to one object? Life. There can be but one conclusion, that the world must have been designed by a one master mind, that there is but one God, the creator and ruler of all things. In olden times there were so many people, and so many very clever people, too, who believed in several gods. They saw the works of creation with eyes like our eyes, but not with thoughts like our thoughts. They viewed the sun as the source of light, which made their fields fertile and their gardens gay. They viewed the rain as a source of gloom, and as an enemy of the sun, because it often spoiled their crops, undoing all the good which the sun had wrought. They considered the wind as an enemy of the rain, because it dried it up, and undid the rain's work. So when they saw the different powers of nature fighting with each other, the one undoing the work of the other, they thought each power had a separate god which ruled it, and this idea they carried still further they saw that men were ruled by different virtues and vices one was moved by revenge another by love another by hatred another by ambition another by avarice another by patriotism another by philanthropy and so on they found such very different results produced by these different men that they imagined the various virtues vices and passions which led them or drove them on to these different results must each have a different god. Besides they often saw in one and the same man, perhaps in themselves, as we find in ourselves, good passions and bad passions, fighting with one another, sometimes the one and sometimes the other gaining the victory. Thus it happened that they had a great number of gods, a god of the sun, a god of the rain, a god of the winds and a god of the waves, and so on. No doubt many of the clever people in those days must have thought this absurd, for some of them in their books made their gods cut a very funny figure, representing them as doing all sorts of ungodly things. But certainly there were millions who really believed in all these gods, and we must not laugh at them, for they knew no better. The idea of a number of gods arose in this way. They noticed the sun, and noticed the rain, and noticed the wind. They saw the effects of each, but did not think of the effect of all put together they saw that one power moistened the earth and the other dried it that one parched the earth and the other cooled it but they did not see that it was the moistening and drying the parching and cooling which all put together made the crops grow so too in the affairs of men they saw the love and the hatred the charity and the revenge the avarice and the ambition the good and the evil pulling different ways but they did not see that all these opposites, put together, kept the world of men in that state of activity of mind and body, which is a necessity of man's nature. In a word, they did not look at the world, as we have been looking at it, as a whole, and did not notice, indeed did not know, how all these parts fitted into each other, and form the whole. But happily we know better. We know that these powers of nature, which by themselves would produce such opposite effects, together balance one another and it is this balance of power which affords another proof that there is but one creator and ruler of the world the idea may be explained by another example taken from the affairs of men we read in the newspapers now and then about some ambitious nation trying to become too strong or endeavouring to master its weak neighbour when such things take place the rulers of the other nations step in and say that the thing ought not to be, lest it should disturb the balance of power. In other words, lest the ambitious nation should become too powerful and swallow up the little nations. Thus, the balance of power is maintained by one nation watching the other very closely and keeping it in check. But sometimes the ambitious nation says I won't be kept in check, I will swallow up my weak neighbor and perhaps he will pretend that his weak neighbor is wicked and barbarous, and deserves to be swallowed up, or perhaps he will try to show that his weak neighbor doesn't mind being swallowed up, and indeed rather likes it. Then there begins a terrible dispute, and perhaps the nations come to blows, and there is a long and frightful war. Usually the balance of power is maintained in such a conflict, but sometimes it ends in the ambitious nation becoming more powerful, till it goes on, year after year, greedily adding fresh provinces to its empire. Such a state of things never lasts, but while it lasts, it is very inconvenient and burdensome. But a nature that is in the works of God, it is very different. There the balance of power is quite as necessary, for without it we should now and then have all our houses blown down by a hurricane, all our fields burned by the sun's heat, or all the inhabitants of the earth, swept away by a deluge, for the winds, the sun, and the rain would be quite strong enough to produce such results, if they were not held in check. Yet all the forces of nature are so nicely balanced that, while each performs its work, it works without destroying. Now and then, indeed, there are slight, very slight departures from the balance of power, but very soon it restores itself by some convulsion, affecting but a small portion of the earth, such as an earthquake, a whirlwind, or a thunderstorm. These are often destructive, but they are no doubt for the general good, evil though they may appear to be. We see the good of a thunderstorm. Perhaps we may, some day, when we shall have grown wiser, see the good of an earthquake. We are not yet wise enough to know the reason of earthquakes. The forces of nature cannot, therefore, have separate and independent rulers as the kingdoms of the earth have. Those forces, pulling in opposite ways and each performing different useful work, still balance one another and balance one another exactly. Hence there must be but one creator who made these forces and governs them. End of Part 1 Chapter 2